This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Metagaming. Food crimes. And my Bay Area book haul. When Bobby would yell for seconds on fish and thirds, his mother said his big mouth would give him brain fever like his cousin Larry Marsh, and how would he like that? And Bobby said just fine, and his mother sent him to his room without any fish at all. Thus begins the strangely familiar, yet disturbingly alien, illustrated tale, Where the Deep Ones Are. It's part of Atlas Games' mini-mythos series, which also includes the delightful parodies, Cliff Howard, The Big Red God. Good Night Azathoth, and the Antarctic Express. All of them written by yours truly. Right now, and for a limited time, Atlas is offering a buy-two, get-one-free bundle of mini-mythos goodness. Which makes delightfully subversive gifts for friends, relatives, and especially their children. Leap online, Mythos fans! Point your browsers to atlas-games.com slash Cthulhu4kids. That's Cthulhu, the number four, and the word kids. Or follow the link in the show notes. That seems wise. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the gaming hut. But what's that? Peter Frampton is holding a Dorito and rolling dice and playing with miniatures. <laughs> How meta can you get? Oh, well, and more on meta his than GM that. screen, there's another Peter Frampton. There's another, another Peter, Peter Frampton. Frampton. It's actually Peter Frampton. It's pudgy but cheerful Peter Frampton running a game about playing a game. Yes, now we've made it impossible. Now we've made it as bad as it can it's be. Peter Frampton's all the way down. Yes. Like turtles, except with more auto-tune. Yes. Um, <laughs> a vocoder. Come on. It, that's it, true. It was, pro, it, was, it was the old analog auto-tune. Yes. Back in the day. Where the hell are we going with this? Oh, right. Uh, we're, we're we've going, gone meta, Ken. We've we're gone going meta. deep. We're going deep. We're going into the land where we comment on ourselves going deep into the land. We're talking meta gaming because it's... I, I mean, I guess us talking gaming is always a little bit meta, but meta gaming happens at the table, or does it? Robin, what is it? Is it good? Should we be meta gaming more? Should we be allowing one tiny art form in all the land to not be meta? What's going on? So, uh, like railroading, uh, meta gaming is something that people uh, do at the gaming table, and uh, enough people dislike that they came up with a term for it. And unlike railroading, you rarely hear in the course of the game, uh, anyone say, we're railroading, or we're being railroaded. But a lot of the times you will hear players, I think particularly from the trad tradition that comes out of uh, D&D and its various uh, spiritual errors, uh, you'll hear people say, oh, oh, but we're metagaming. Uh, and that's a, a bad thing that you have to stop doing. And like many terms in the world of role-playing gaming, the definition can be becomes all the more slippery uh, as you try to examine it as uh, again peter frampton's all the way down but roughly speaking it is a form of breaking character from the reality of the game that is deemed to be negative 
And already you hear folks, Robin, putting the thumb on the scale of my skepticism of the concept of uh, metagaming, because we constantly break character while we play. Uh, when you go roll a, a saving throw, you're breaking character. That breaks the reality of the game. But I think the breaking reality, it really, I think, is talking about trying to analyze what the GM is doing from a point of view outside of your own characters. So if you go, oh, well, obviously the big fight is coming up because it's nine o'clock and we always knock off at 10 and then let's plan our resources accordingly is, I think, the, the bad example of metagaming where you're using information outside of the character awareness and inside your awareness of the way the game works for your tactical advantage. But then again, there's all sorts of other examples of that. And sometimes it can be useful for a player to point out, hey, it's 920, we'd better get a move on. So Ken, is metagaming an issue for you? Is this something that you uh, worry about? Or is this a, a holdover from a previous, I think, more strict way of trying to separate uh, what you're allowed to think about at the table and what you're not allowed to think about. Uh, let me start by offering a slightly more restrictive definition of metagaming. It's not just acting in a way that breaks character. It's acting in a way by the GM or by the players to uh, respond to knowledge that they are in a game. So it's, well, we know that the GM has put the door over there, so we'll go over there. There's no reason we'd actually like that guy, but we know he's a main NPC who gives us clues, so we won't kill him. And that's the sort of metagaming uh, response that people talk about a lot of times. Or they're talking about, I think your your notion of trad people objecting to it is that when you play a game to feed a known dramatic arc or something, well, we have to get to the big romance because it's a romance game. So let's do that. Um, start sorting through, you know, bridesmaids or maids of honor, ladies in waiting until we can get to the romance. You know, you're, you're, you're playing the game with the knowledge of a pre-existing story arc as opposed to waiting for the story to emerge out of play, which is what in the, you know, golden ideal of uh, Gygaxian naturalism, that's what would happen is that you just play a bunch of encounters and sure enough, a story arc would emerge of you, be, you know, gaining the crown of command and ruling all the land of Greyhawk. And so playing to specifically knowledge of a game going on and like you suggest playing specifically even to the knowledge of your GM's uh, foibles and specific natures is metagaming to an extent. And like you, I think that it is a thing that can be done well, or it's a thing that can be done badly, like virtually all things. And like you, I agree that if you've looked at your watch and it's still nine o'clock and you haven't gotten off the dime, maybe it is time to go start poking some monsters and see what happens. But I also think that by and large, one of the fun things about role playing is that it does allow for that emergent story. And so while I have a great deal of respect and have played many of the story games with a great deal of fun, I think the best of them are the ones that create emergent conditions out of which the pre-existing story naturally emerges. And of course, the sort of the great example of that is Fiasco, but Dogs in the Vineyard has the same sort of thing where it creates the arc of the classic uh, Western without actually forcing it into the game saying, now we're at stage three. It has, for a game that has various deliberate stages of play, none of it seems to be metagamed. So, like everything else, don't ask, am I metagaming? Ask, am I being a jerk? Or am I ruining other people's fun? Or am I getting in the GM's nose for no reason? And if you answer those questions, yes, it doesn't matter if you're metagaming. Whatever you're doing, stop doing it. Conversely, if you're asking, oh, where's the fun? How can I get to the fun? How can I make this more fun for me? 
that's not metagaming or whether it is metagaming by the letter of the law, but it also is productive of good play at the table. So do that. Do more of it. Yeah, I would say that people who are concerned about metagaming are more often likely to articulate a concern about taking undue tactical advantage, but that the real harm in it is that it sort of sarcastically deflates your emotional connection to a scene or the situation. So that if, uh, you know, two characters are starting to play out their romantic arc, and then a third player goes, oh, romantic arc starting, that is unhelpful, that doesn't uh, give you an advantage during play, and see previous discussion about how not to be a jerk. Now, uh, gamers and geeks in general uh, have a sort of dualistic approach to the narratives they love, where they love to undercut them, uh, even uh, though they uh, these are the narratives they really want to experience. And so I think the first, uh, and that's the most difficult thing for the GM to deal with at the table, right? That if you're just using knowledge that you shouldn't have, it's like, well, obviously uh, the uh, princess has got to be on the other side of this door because it's 8.30 and this is where there's time for a big dramatic turn. That's A, uh, jerky, but it's also be, you know, that you're uh, not doing the work of having your character come up with a reason to go to that door. So that if you are having a meta awareness of where the narrative is going because of the way that stories and your GM's style work, that's not in and of itself a bad thing, but there's a, a supportive way to make that happen, which is if you figured out that, yes, you know, due to Priscilla's game style, the princess is going to be behind this door. You don't then just say, well, this is a Priscilla game, so princess behind door. You come up with an in-character reason to build on that to uh, justify why your character cares about that door. And if you, you know, have uh, any metal whatsoever as a role player, you know enough about your character to go, well, Griffin the Dwarf, is very interested in doors because I've already established he's got a sketchbook full of doors. Instead of saying the annoying undercutting thing, I'm going to do the cool, fun thing that nonetheless gets us to where everybody wants to go because we don't want to faff around for another half hour before we get to the princess behind the door. Basic rule of storytelling. If you know something's got to happen, get to it as quickly as you can. So if you are uh, tempted to metagame, you should then find an in-character way of getting to where everybody wants to be, and you, you will seem like someone who is uh, good at, at passing the puck, if I may be permitted a Canadian uh, metaphor. Uh, Ken, if you're the GM, and you have a player who is sort of sarcastically undercutting all of the big moments with a, a mystery science theater uh, subpar commentary, is there a gentle way to get them to stop absent just uh, kicking them out of the group? Um, there's a couple of things. First of all, as a GM, it is my job to make the movie so good you don't MST3K it, or at least you don't do it during the movie. So I'm like a guy directing one of these Star Wars movies. I have to provide them the stuff they know they came in to see, and I have to do it in an exciting fashion so that they don't sit back and say, this is literally just Star Wars over again, dude. Why are we watching this? Why did I give you $9 when I could have just gone and watched my pirated real Star Wars? And that's my job as a GM, just like it's, you know, Gareth Edwards' job as a director, right? Right. So I feel like it's 
you know, some of it is on me. If, if they're MST3K, the reason people MST3K is the movie's not very good. So the other thing though that you can do is don't go to that player for responses. Go to other players, freeze them out. I mean, it usually you have other players who want to do things. Let's let them do something to move the game forward and just ignore the guy as though whatever they said didn't even occur because it doesn't in game, obviously. And you can sort of allow other players to, to take the, the, the line of the game for a while as, as we move up the, the level of, of responses, talk to them out of game, say, Hey, dude, that wasn't helpful. Uh, we all thought it was funny, but funny is not what we we're going for. Given that it is a horror game, maybe you could trim that back. Like I, like I say at uh, panels, we're not training dolphins. We're dealing with other human beings. We have a system for interacting with human beings. Use your words. See how that works out. And then, yeah, sure. If they're inveterate Crow-T robots, kick them out of the damn game. Send them to the satellite. Although dolphins are much easier because you just need to give them fish. And they'll, you know, that's their experience point system. That is their experience point system. But they may get the fish resentfully and be plotting your demise. <laughs> yeah, especially if they've been talking to the orcas. Those, right. those guys are uh, trouble. So is is metagaming a concern for you in your game a concern that other players needlessly express in your game or not an issue at all well i mean i i'm a you know not to gild my lily but i'm a pretty good gm and i have deliberately selected really good players and played good games with them and you know we've built a sort of a trust tree there at the at the at the house so we know what we're getting into. When they metagame, they metagame the good way, which is to say, we should get moving. You know, we've already eaten, you know, our dinner's already come. So it's time for the actual motor of the, of the game to start engaging. Or they say things like, well, um, knowing Ken, this is much more complex than it looks. Let's take a step back and see if we can figure out the actual plan that's happening. Or they'll say, no one ever got in trouble in a Ken game for, um, uh, killing a necromancer. So let's go you know, take this guy out. But again, it's, it's sort of shorthand for, of course, my character wants to kill a necromancer. Look at him right there on his character sheet. It says is alive. Right. So, you so know. in this instance saying, knowing this is a Ken game is just the way that the characters know they're in this kind of story. Right. Just the way that, you know, in a Lovecraft inspired playing game, you want characters to act like Lovecraft characters. And essentially the, the players as players, not as their characters are articulating that they are cut out from this world. Exactly. That if you have it's a like character, say, going, what would Jason Bourne do in a Knights Black Agents game? Right. Uh, if they're going, oh, no, everything's simple. And, you know, that, that, okay, it's in character for you to walk into a buzzsaw because you are uh, acting like a Gary Gygax character in a Ken Height game. That, you know, might be funny once, but again, it gets your character buzzsawed, and that's not necessarily uh, so much fun. My experience of, of metagaming is that the player who is most concerned about metagaming is also the player who is most likely to metagame. Uh, so <laughs> he has sort of, it's sort of a way that he has been checking himself, uh, which is useful, it means I don't have to do anything, and that he has uh, evolved his style over the years so that he is much more likely to. Uh, you know, he pays attention to what time it is in the in the scenario, but now in a more useful way, it's like, okay, we got to stop arguing and get to the end of the session. And that's just him saying something that I would otherwise have to say in essentially the same words. So it's uh, it's good when the person who thinks that way kind of flips the switch and uh, asks, how can I do this in a way that moves us forward rather than takes us out of the action? Because basically... 
in a role-playing game, if you were doing anything to move the story toward its conclusion, whether it's a relatively pre-planned conclusion or uh, the emerging conclusion of a fully improvised game, that uh, forgives a multitude of sins. And speaking of moving things to conclusions, I believe we may have moved this segment to its conclusion, and thus into another segment via a helpful advertisement. Kids, want to plunge headlong into Lovecraftian mystery but lack a gaming group? Want to introduce a friend or loved one to the role-playing hobby? Gumshoe One-to-One has come to your rescue. Find this new system by some guy named Robin D. Laws. In the first Gumshoe One-to-One book, Cthulhu Confidential, combine the darkness of 30s hard-boiled detective fiction with the cosmic horror of Lovecraft's Cthulhu mythos, complete with three dauntless investigators, each ready to play in seconds. Scholarly veteran Langston Wright by Chris Spivey. Crusading journalist Vivian Sinclair by Ruth Tillman. And Robin's hard-boiled private eye, Dex Raymond. Presenting three terrifying settings. Wartime Washington, D.C., a sleeping Goliath soon to awake. 1935 New York City, that roaring town and Egypt inside out. 1937 Los Angeles, its streets dark with something more than night. Includes three full-length thrilling scenarios. Capital Color, a mystery of meteoric impact. Fatal frequencies illumined by a light that cannot be seen. The Fathomless Sleep, a spiral into memory unspeakable. Also with... Tips and tricks for managing the doubled intensity of one-to-one play. Full support for creating your own one-to-one adventures. Guidance for online play. Being alone and terrified has never been so much fun. The delicious produce being spritzed by spritzers, the smell of spices and herbs and resonated oils wafting through the air, the sound of cleavers hitting things, hopefully meat, tell us that we are once more entering the food hut. But today, the food hut is blazoned with red and blue flashing lights. There's guys in (laughs) trench coats moving in on the produce, holding up badges, because we are entering a food hut crime blotter. This is the world of food, crimes and scams. And uh, not all of them, even just a couple of them, Robin, because there turn out to be a lot of food crimes and scams, yep. some of which just make you weep with sadness. But these are more fun and happy crimes and scams, I think. Well, we may start off with the examples we've been provided and, and continue on as uh, as the capacity of this segment uh, allows. Uh, but uh, do you want to tell the story of the uh, exciting Calgary-based anecdote that uh, led Vanna to propose this subject? Yes, I do. This is from a tweet by a guy named Dan Olson with an O. With two O's, probably. Yeah, almost certainly. Patreon backer Vanna Stillwater pointed us to it, in which Dan Olson explains that there is an entire network, in his words, of bootleg pizza delivery companies in Calgary. And the story is that there is apparently a fine pizza establishment in Calgary called Chicago Deep Dish. And now let us pass over, for the time being, (laughs) whether there is actually Chicago Deep Dish pizza in Calgary, because that's the kind of invidious city bragging that makes no one look good. No, I I thought Calgary would be after your own heart with that. It is. It's the Texas of Canada. I love Calgary. I think Calgary is magnificent. I'm just... In actual Texas of America, you also cannot get Chicago Deep Dish. So, just saying. Calgarians everywhere. I'm sure that you're... Chicago Deep Dish Restaurant is a delightful one, but 
What but, if but it's, it's not? enough to inspire a long-running scam? Because the Chicago Calgary deep dish place somehow did not get a trademark or they failed to get uh, rights to their name of their pizza store. And so people began to go around and put out flyers with the real pizza store name and a pretend pizza store number. And so you get a flyer for Chicago deep dish and a number on your, you know, uh, windshield or in your door or wherever. And so you just call the number like a, like a trusting soul and a guy answers and you order your pizza and they deliver you a not as good pizza. And they charge you the Chicago deep dish prices. Their advertising and branding are all from the Chicago deep dish company. And you know, the, they, they would discover this. They'd shut one guy down, but of course it's an easy scam to do because all you need is a place to make pizza with. And you can do that, you know, maybe out of the back of a pizza hut. I don't know where they do it. But the sense seems to be that they're like sort of rogue home kitchens even. Yeah. That they're, they're, you know, they're, they're sneaking out. I mean, I, at some point there's a pizza oven involved, so it's, it, it can't be that rogue because making $5 pizza in your kitchen at home seems like a terrible way to make a lot of money. But the shtick is there's this network of bootleg pizza places because of course, once one place does it, other places are like, Oh, well, as long as you can steal someone else's branding, let's do that. And so the real Chicago deep dish place in Calgary had to change their slogan. They had to change their menus. They had to change their branding so that everyone's flyers would no longer be accurate. And then they also had to really advertise their right phone number and just drill it into your head so that when you saw, you know, it's like, it's like in Chicago, there's an ad, there's a company called Empire Carpets that's, um, uh, I'm not going to do the jingle because that will drive all Chicagoans mad and be pointless for everyone else. But, yeah. but the uh, Empire Carpet jingle contains the number. And so if you got a flyer for the Empire Carpets and you looked and you saw another number, you'd recognize that you were being rooked. But this Chicago deep dish place, the poor guys, um, they are still basically being ripped off and scammed because some people don't pay attention to numbers. They just sort of cut out the, 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 the first bit of the cream, but there's still lots of guys doing and, it. And even better detail, my favorite bit of this scam is that when the fake pizza guy shows up with the fake pizza, he has a fake fridge magnet with their number and the Chicago Deep Dish uh, logo on it. So then people put that on their fridge, therefore guaranteeing not only that the next time you call, you don't call the real Chicago Deep Dish, but you call their particular clone of the Chicago Deep Dish, which... I guess it's not actually a crime because there's some sort of doubt that exists around their original. Because they don't actually have a trademark on their business name. Right. Somehow. Perhaps because Chicago deep dish are all, you know, is, it's is too a general term in, in Alberta. So, and, and the other thing that I like is that if you call the pretend number and you, and they say, Hey, Chicago deep dish pizza, how can I help you? And you say, yeah, like an order for carry in. They say, let us transfer you. And then they transfer you to real Chicago deep dish. <laughs> well, it, I guess that's, that's giving back a, a little. Uh, well, it's, 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 it's just trying not to avoid blowing the gap, getting rumbled immediately. Although I guess if you decide in the middle of the process that you want, uh, carry out or then there. Then, then that, that's how Dan Olson with an O discovered what was going on is he became suspicious of why they had to transfer him to another phone number if he was getting the, the Chicago deep dish pizza from the right place. So that is a very specific food scam that I, I think is hard to think is duplicated elsewhere because it requires a very particular set of circumstances. Um, <laughs> and a very particular set of skills, yes, pointless skills. Yes, deep dish skills. Um, the more common ones, though, uh, would be ingredient substitution. Right. Recently, 
investigative reporters have been commissioning DNA tests on uh, the sushi, on sushi fish, and it turns out that your chance of getting the actual advertised fish is surprisingly low. It's it's not what you want it to be. No, and especially given the amount of grocery store and bar and other dive sushi that I've eaten in my life. I mean, I've probably eaten like, you know, a plesiosaur at some point. Yes. And, and, uh, playing the, the, the leader of plesiosaur, uh, parasites as well, but that's a separate yes. issue. Well, no, the, I mean, you can get parasites from the actual fish. Yes, exactly. Like, the parasites, P- parasites is just a matter check of ID. That's, that's situational awareness. Yes. <laughs> and I feel like that's on me. But if I, if I asked for salmon and I was given plesiosaur, I feel like that's a bit of a rip. Yes. Now with salmon and tuna, they're sort of, there aren't a lot of, you know, alternate salmons and tunas, but when you get into Because they're white- more recognizable. Although tuna, actually, it turns out, um, there is a, a, a much higher percentage than I would have thought of for tuna. And, and what, uh, do you remember offhand what the non-tunas are? Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on, on these, on these studies, because it's not like a national, right. uh, you know, laboratory doing it, but it's individual reporters. But they'll go to a, a given market and they'll, I think this becomes the thing that, you know, if you, if you're desperate to fill column in the, in the food area, you, you send a guy out to DNA test the sushi because you know that it's going to be, you know, 30% of the, of the tuna isn't going to be tuna or that it's going to be some kind of, of waste fish, I guess. Right. And that can be a problem because, uh, some people are particularly susceptible to a particular species of fish and not others. Uh, and, right. uh, that's a big problem for me because, uh, often the red snapper you're getting is tilapia. And guess what? Tilapia is not my digestive friend. So, yeah. uh, in fact, that's why I've eased up on my sushi eating. And I can absolutely see the difference between, I mean, I can see the overlap there. Red snapper to tilapia makes sense. Yeah. Basically, uh, the, your chances of actually getting red snapper when you order red snapper are, are low. Uh, then of course there's the percentage of ingredients. There's a current DNA testing scandal with Subway sandwiches, which we have uh, condemned previously on the show. Architecturally, though now artistically as artistically well. Artistically as well. Uh, and uh, it turns out that uh, some of their chicken is only 50% chicken. Or less. Or less. It's like 40% some of it. And, and so it's like you're literally getting a minority of chicken in the chicken. And the filler is soybeans. It's not, you know, polyfill yeah, or something. It's not starling. But it's still, I, if I wanted soybeans, I'd be an entirely different person <laughs> than I am. <laughs> They could probably sell a, a soybean uh, a loaf if they uh, wanted to, but it turns out they already are. They're just calling it chicken. Yeah, I don't know what what their problem is. Yeah, I mean, I do know what their problem is. They're cheap and horrible. Yeah. but still. And then we get to uh, the other example, which is people who are attempting to flout food uh, uh, safety protections or food or overbearing food regulations, depending on how you want to look at it. Well, you know, <laughs> two sides of the same Deutschmark. Yes, it depends on whether you uh, get food poisoning or not. But a lot of jurisdictions have very restrictive food safety regulations, and they just coincidentally happen to prevent people from operating food trucks or from Selling street food. Or they and, are specifically uh, enforced against foreign communities because the people doing the enforcement are a bunch of racists. Uh, also highly possible. So, for example, uh, there is a Thai food market in a uh, park in Berlin where uh, if you're in the know, you can go and uh, uh, get your a delicious Thai food that is actually like Thai food. Now, there are Thai restaurants in Berlin I can and in Germany, and I can testify to the fact that what you will get if you order the fish curry at a Thai restaurant, say in Hanover, is delicious, 
but very Teutonic. <laughs> <laughs> but not so much a curry in the trusted sense of the term, meaning contains any spice whatsoever. Right. Not what I would expect if I ordered... You got uh, a lovely cold bouillabaisse. You, you get a heavily <laughs> breaded uh, thing with tasty green sauce. Um, yeah. Not what I would get if I ordered the same thing in Toronto, which is also probably inauthentic. But is closer to Bangkok than perhaps the, Hanover, the Hanoverian version is. Yes, uh, certainly so. <laughs> and, uh, and you can trace all of Thai food uh, to one particular uh, chef who introduced, uh, Wandi Young, who introduced Thai food to Toronto in the early 80s. But anyway, you can go to this, uh, this park and get your much more authentic, ergo much spicier Thai food without the, the heavy breading. And they will sell you tubs of Thai chilies so that you can smuggle them back to your house and enjoy the forbidden tastiness. Yes, uh, in, unless you're intercepted by the Scoville police and uh, right, the, yeah. the Scoville units on that. They, they've got the heat-seeking um, uh, the, the radars that will find the heat in your pockets. But when the uh, food inspectors come by, the market converts into a picnic, and it's just people right. out in the park Enjoying a lovely picnic. There's no uh, food being exchanged for money. No, no, no. That couldn't possibly be happening. Uh, not even as you're selling the uh, delicious, uh, authentic fish curry to those nice police officers over there because right. the police officers are not the ones who worry about the, uh, the food safety laws. So we've got a huge range of um, uh, possible shenanigans in which sometimes the uh, victim is the person who holds the authentic rights to produce a particular food or under a particular brand. Uh, sometimes the victim is the uh, the humble consumer who expects their uh, chicken sandwich to have chicken in it. <laughs> or perhaps even to have nothing but chicken nothing in it. Nothing but chicken in or it. Or at least chicken and, you know, the sort of fun uh, hormones and such yeah. that you get from industrial we, chicken. We all have our own chicken thresholds. Right, yeah. But I think 40% chicken is below most people's threshold for chicken. I think we're safe on that one. <laughs> And, uh, and then you have the, uh, either actual or putative fear of contamination from stuff not being produced, uh, in an officially recognized kitchen that obeys all of, all of the rules. So if we want to then transfer this, uh, to gaming, first of all, it's a fun detail in your Knights Black Agents game to go and meet your contact at the illicit Thai food market, uh, slash picnic. And that can be a cool sort of background detail. Uh, and uh, you can even have uh, games where, uh, you know, the issue is that in a world where particular foodstuffs are incredibly valuable, like spices were, we did a spice segment earlier, um, you could have the whole issue of counterfeit spices, which are definitely a thing uh, mm -hmm. when, the, uh, yes. when the spice trade was uh, an extremely lucrative industry. So you can have, uh, you know, your agents can like lick their finger and dip it into the cumin and put it on their tongue. It's like, uh, this is the pure stuff. This is the good or, stuff. You know, or this is, or this is not, I'm beginning to hallucinate and this is not normally what we hope for from cumin. Well, <laughs> maybe you don't. <laughs> I think you can also talk about, you know, your purity of ingredients. Like if you needed a specific kind of a, of a, of an ingredient for a magical spell, like the spell has to have vervain and you go down to the witchy shop and the witchy shop sells you the vervain in the little packet and you go home and you use it and oh, you got foxglove. Ha ha. You were cheated. Yeah. And now, you know, the demon isn't bound perhaps, or the spell went sideways or whatever. If you did not grow the vervain in your own little herb garden, and again, from a seed that you recognized as a vervain seed, because maybe you planted foxglove seeds because the seed guy ripped you off, you don't have the right magical ingredients. Or you have, you know, a garlic, you're, you're getting your garlic uh, oil or your garlic powder, and yeah, it's got some garlic in it to make it smell like it, but it's not enough garlic oil to actually damage a vampire like pure garlic oil would be. So you have, 
you know, a garlic oil and, and a bunch of onion oil because it's still got that Allison in it. And so the, uh, you know, you toss it at the vampire and he's like, this is, I'm, am I a salad now? What's going on? And then you're a salad, <laughs> which also made me think that you can use them as, as sort of parallelisms because for example, you go through the Thai park in, in Berlin and everyone's, you know, the cops, cops, cops. And then they all pretend, Hey, everyone, we're just chilling out and having a picnic. And you're like, Oh, that's cute. And then you go into a nightclub and. You have a sense that just as you came in, everyone sort of moved around and they're like, hey, we're just a bunch of goths hanging out in a nightclub. Nothing going on here. And you're like, the vampires were feeding on everyone just before we got here. I get it. Very clever. Now we have to figure out who's the vampire and who's the the victim in this nightclub. But we can't, for whatever reason, just pull out a gun and start shooting. Oh, right. Human decency. That's why we can't do that. And even the bootleg pizza idea is something that you could use as a fun little uh, twist in an investigative game, like a gumshoe game, where... The pizza guy is the one who saw the crucial thing that the bad guys uh, want uh, to hunt him down for, but they are looking for an, a delivery person from the actual Chicago Deep Dish Pizza Company, but it was a bootleg guy, and you as the investigators can steal a march on them and get ahead by figuring that out and finding the real person who you then have to uh, get to a safe house, and then that, of course, he has information, and that leads further into the uh, investigation. Uh, well, this is uh, making me hungry, so I think it's time for us to go and have a little micro snack and then come back. But uh, before we do that, uh, we should also tip the hat to Taylor of the Leviathan Files podcast, who also tipped us to the furtive food market of Berlin. What historical parameters pertain when you add pirates to your game? Well, you have to begin with a systematic uh, destruction of state power. That in sounds a... fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 2 of The Best of Phoenix, available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by Patreon backers exactly like... Lee Carnell. Paul and Cleo Buckland. Louis Sylvester. Ethan Cordray. And Garrett Fitzgerald. Well, folks, Ken is back from the Bay Area, and experienced listeners know that that means that Ken has denuded the Bay Area of its best-used books about polyptony, history, the occult, and uh, maybe some literary criticism, uh, because we are once more uh, pawing through 
a pile of books that Ken has brought back to us and laid out for our vicarious delectation on Ken's bookshelf. And I guess before we move to the actual books, I gather another of your favorite used bookstores is on the verge of ascending to the choir invisible. Yes. Oh, it's so sad. There is a place in San Ramon, which is where Dundrakhan technically occurs, uh, which is way, way out in the, in the East Bay. It's so East Bay. It's not even Bay anymore. I wouldn't think it's barely Bay area, but it's lovely. And it's a, it's a nice little town and I have no ill feelings to San Ramon, except your bookstore is going out of business. You illiterate jerks. Um, there's a lovely bookstore called Bay books, which is right across from, where the convention is, you go like one exit down the highway. It's right next to the in and out, which is how I noticed it. And sure enough, it's a lovely used bookstore, has great stuff. The staff are always delightful. It's everything you would want, a jewel of your community, and it's going out of business in April. So if people hear me now, rush, if you are within the San Ramon area, the San Ramon catchment district, rush to Bay Books, buy everything from their shelves, thank them for being in business and uh, make yourself happier by having lots of lovely used books. So Bay Books in San Ramon, go do it. And did you notice whether it's moving online or just going out of business entirely? Or They did not say, hey, check our website online, because that's not what you say when you're going out of business. But um, I think that they may just be going out of business. The strip mall may have raised their rent or whoever runs it may have, you know, retired. That happens a lot. You Start start a bookstore when you're you know 30 and you think it's going to be a fun thing to do for a few years and then you're 65 and you can't wait to not ever lift a box of books again. Yeah, I, I think that happens too. Well, uh, speaking of boxes of books, let's open up our first box. Let's do it. And here in my imaginary, well, not my imaginary hand, but imaginarily in my hand is The Mystery of the Hanging Garden of Babylon by Stephanie Dally. Yeah, Stephanie Dally is a genuine Assyriologist. She has done uh, work on uh, all manner of archaeological whatnots in the Mesopotamian area, and she has been giving talks on Babylon at various civic events and whatnot, and everyone always raises their hand and says, how come you didn't talk about the Hanging Gardens? And her answer has always been, well, because there's no archaeological evidence they ever existed, and then people pouted her. <laughs> and so I think her theory was, I'm sick of hearing these guys. I want to find out if there was no archaeological evidence of the hanging gardens in Babylon, but there is documented evidence in the, in the histories of the period, the late Hellenistic, early Roman era geographers who put it in the, in the, you know, wonders for a reason. What on earth are they talking about? And her theory is they're talking about different hanging gardens, which were built by the Assyrians in Nineveh and in other places like that. So this is the Chicago deep dish of archaeological wonders. Archaeological wonders. Now, I want to say, first of all, that Stephanie Daly has absolutely convinced me that the Assyrians built really great hanging gardens, and she is almost about to convince me that the Assyrians invented the Archimedean screw for water lifting. Uh, she has not yet done it, but I, I have confidence in her. <laughs> that said, I happen to know that Nineveh was reduced to mud bricks and rubble in 612 BC, and that when Alexander the Great marched his armies past Nineveh, no one knew what the pile of bricks meant, which makes me wonder, how come 500 years after it's been utterly destroyed, do we have the Hanging Gardens showing up in Babylon of all places? Is Does the memory of that garden last that long that a bunch of Greeks 
go to Babylon and people say, oh, well, if you like our garden, which is not hanging in any way, you should have been in Nineveh 500 years ago. They had some gardens and then said, well, people will be confused if I write down Nineveh 500 years. That doesn't seem like a legitimate chain of, of documentary evidence to me. So I want to find out if maybe the Selyukids kids rebuilt the hanging gardens of Nineveh or something. And I'm sure if they did, it's going to be somewhere deep in, in the bowels of the mystery of the hanging garden of Babylon. Um, and again, I want no obloquy to attach to Stephanie Daly. She's doing the Lord's work, but I cannot read more than five pages of this book at a time without looking for another book to read because it is, it's not even turgid. It's just, she, she's very, very careful to document everything she says and sort of do it a lot. And right. so, so it's, it's, uh, it's not popular archaeology. I, I would not, I would not believe it is popular. It is well footnoted. It is a wonderful text. There are lovely illustrations. It is everything you want from a book about the hanging garden of Babylon. I personally am just finding it a bit of a slog to get through, but I will do it because I really want to know. Uh, next we come to Hellenistic science and culture in the last three centuries BC by George Sarton. And we know just from the structure of that title that this is also sounds like Serious academic work. Yes, this was published by a Harvard scholar, I believe. And it is a summa in the way that things used to be in the mid-century where they said, well, we pretty much know everything archaeologically. It's time to start listing it out and, and laying it down for people. You can imagine an, a young L. Sprague de Camp, or actually, I guess, a middle-aged L. Sprague de Camp, picking this book up and borrowing things from it for his science fiction uh, because it's that kind of book. It's it's a great sort of a everything that they knew in 1960 call it, about science and technology and culture in the Hellenistic era. And since I'm running a game set in the Hellenistic era, hey, look at that, a compendium. How helpful is that? Uh, especially since my game has a lot of clockworks and crazy science in it. So it's fun to say, well, actually, this kind of thing did happen. But uh, as good as it is, this book does predate, for example, the figuring out what the Antikythera device was, uh, as well as other wonderful things. So I'm sure that if someone... If the fashion academically were to ever return to writing compendia, the new compendium would be even newer and more compendious. But for what it is, it's perfectly terrific. And since it's a Dover book, it's uh, not even that expensive. Now, uh, next up, we come to a topic that I know mostly through a cool short story that uh, Richard Dansky wrote for uh, the new hero, a fiction anthology I edited a while back for Stoneskin Press. And that is Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean by Edward Kritzler. And this is just uh, a super fun, fascinating topic. How good a book is this on that topic? Does it seem to be, he says, abandoning syntax at the last minute? <laughs> syntax. What has it ever done for us? Yeah. Um, well, I'll tell you, I can guarantee it is the best book about Jewish pirates of the Caribbean that has ever been written. I can tell you that. Because it's, it's the only one or just it's the yes, best one? Yes, it, it is um, the only one. But it's also, you know, again, uh, there, there is almost certainly more to know. Because what we, what we find out when we start looking into Spanish archives and Spanish records is that they had a lot of detail in them, lots of information. But, uh, in terms of sort of your first cut, your first dive into the notion of Jewish pirates and certainly enough for gaming, uh, this is, this is a good book. And it's, this is popular history. This is, although it's got footnotes, it's very much, I mean, it says pirates right on the cover. Is it perhaps rollicking? I don't know how rollicking is because of course it begins with the, uh, persecution of the Jews by the Inquisition. So that's a little yeah, unrollicking. That. Yes, that, that doesn't rollick. But then again, you know, Captain Blood begins with the bloodiest sizes, and so it becomes rollicking. I think that you, you don't become a, a pirate 
Uh, mostly if you've just had a nice bucolic life, you become a, a naturalist or a yes, butterfly Yes, if everything's hunter. been going fine, you seldom turn to piracy. And right. this notion is that the conversos and the Jews who fled uh, Spain and Portugal wound up in areas from whence they could turn pirate. And perhaps there was a bit of got you back to their attitude, which is certainly understandable. And given that they are sailing against the um, uh, the hated Spanish, why not? Next up, we have Ada, the Enchantress of Numbers by Betty Alexandra Toole. And this presumably is Ada Lovelace. It is Ada Lovelace. And what it is, is it is a compilation of her letters arranged to create sort of a biography and then edited and uh, arranged by... Uh, Betty Alexandra Tool. So it's an epistolary autobiography. It's an epistolary autobiography of Ada Lovelace. And so when I saw that, first of all, I'm a big Byron fan, as you know, and I'm also a big steampunk kind of guy, or I was before people started doing it wrong all the time. And <laughs> I like the notion of going back to individual letters to find great quotes that might be taken out of context and turned into proof of robots or vampires or something. So I, I look at this as... Should I ever write anything set in the lifetime of Ada Lovelace and involving some kind of uh, gameable topic, I'm sure that this will provide me nugget upon nugget. Plus, I mean, you just have to look at the picture of Ada Lovelace on the cover, and you you, you couldn't turn those eyes down. Look at her. She inherited her dad's looks. Right. Uh, and so, Patreon backers, take note if you want to hear uh, Ken's anti-current steampunk rant, just just let us know, and it will count as one of your uh, Patreon access questions. Next up, uh, we come to uh, some anthropaleontological chicanery with The Jesuit and the Skull, Talard de Chardin, Evolution and the Search for Peking Man by Emir de Axel. Yes. Uh, this was a gift, a gift of, uh, I don't know if he's a friend of the show, uh, if he's a pat if he's a Patreon backer or not, but he's a friend of mine because reliably at Dundrakan, he and I go to In and Out, which is great. And at In and Out this time, he said, "Oh, don't let me forget, I have a book for you." Which is, I'll tell you what, I'm not going to forget that. And this is the book. And first of all, Talard de Chardin is weird and uh, fascinating in his own right. The Peking Man skull is a great story because the skull actually goes away; it, it vanishes in the tumult of interwar China and plenty of people are willing to say, well, the, uh, everything that I don't like about Peking man for my own theory about paleontology can be demonstrated by the fact that the skull's not around anymore. And then also in interwar China, as I perhaps have alluded, there is all manner of other stuff going on. So he makes friends with the pirate King of the red sea, who is actually more of a gun runner than a pirate, um, whose name I think is Demonteith. And, uh, so, we take a, a lengthy uh, divigation to talk about our buddy uh, DeMonteith and all of the excitement that he gets up to there in um, in the course of, of his life. Because Teilhard de Chardin is basically the sort of person who goes around and is friends with everybody. I don't think it is DeMonteith because it's not showing up in the index. It's something else. I was close. It's Henri de Montfried. Montfried is the name of the titular uh, Pirate King of the Red Sea. Um, he wrote a autobiography called Hashish, which I have on order because he seems almost more interesting in many ways than Tillard de Chardin. Certainly less uh, fuzzy thinking about the nature of the oversoul and more piracy. 
So right. you got to like that. Well, I, I wonder if a Patreon backer can will ask us for an entire segment on Talarda Shandan and uh, Pirate Kings and so forth. Uh, who can say? Also, there's a road rally race that gets in there somehow. It, this, this really is like a like someone who's put together a bunch of treatments for an Indiana Jones movie or maybe for the, an Indiana Jones Chronicles TV show and then left them lying around and Tellard de Chardin walks through all of them. He, he picked up all the index cards and exactly. put them up on the court says, board. Instead of if he's a cool archaeologist in a hat, what yeah. if he's a weird Jesuit who thinks that <laughs> mankind exists in a sort of a state of cosmic consciousness? Huh? That's grabby. And then it was like, could there be more pirates and skulls? Absolutely. Speaking of cosmic... Next up, we come to A Century Less a Dream, selected criticism on H.P. Lovecraft, edited by Scott Connors. Yeah, this came out in 2002 and came out in a hardback, a limited edition, and therefore I did not discover one until I went to Borderlands Books, which is a lovely bookstore, which briefly went through a scare about it was maybe closing, but it developed a Patreon or something, and so now people back it and so they get access to autographings and first grab it you know new orders or i don't know what what something wonderful i'm sure and uh so uh if you are a, a san franciscan sponsor borderlands books go there at the very least and buy things off their shelves uh this is just a standard old collection of lovecraftian scholarship and uh some of it no doubt is good and some of it is not so good but there's robert and price in it there's kenneth fag there's st joshi there's a stephen Mariconda piece Robert Waugh. I mean, all the big names are in it. So I think that at the very least, it will be a worthwhile compilation, as the indication indicates, of Lovecraftian higher criticism. Speaking of weird fiction, we come to The Face of the Earth and Other Imaginings by Algernon Blackwood and Incredible Adventures by Algernon Blackwood. The, the good people at Stark House, who I know nothing about, so I, they could be horrible people, but they do good work. <laughs> We're going to start by giving them the benefit of the doubt. Yes. I I immediately assume that anyone who puts Al, uh, Algernon Blackwood back into print is doing the Lord's work. Yeah, and they're these, not running a bootleg pizza operation. Not, sure. They may also be running. You know what? They've, they're probably busy guys. And I'll bet putting Algernon Blackwood back into print does not pay all of your pizza bills. But anyway, um, the uh, Blackwood scholar Mike Ashley, or Astley, whichever it is, Ashley, has been sort of delving around in all of the Blackwood that didn't get published. I mean, we all know ancient sorceries. We all know the John Silent stories. We all know the Willows and uh, the, the Wendigo. But th it turns out there's a lot of Algernon Blackwood. He did possibly 100, maybe 200 short stories during uh, like a 10-year period. He's a very prolific guy. And were they unpublished at the time or just uncollected? They were published and then fell immediately into obscurity. They were not gathered together in, in uh, compilations. So they would be published in magazines or newspapers, and then they would go away. And so Ashley has gone and hunted them down and begun assembling more collections of Algernon Blackwood works. And he did an earlier one called, I believe, The Mystic Mirror, which is also good, but is sort of the, well, that's my one bite at the apple. I better put everything that I can in there. And then he got more bites. And so he's been sort of doing slightly deeper dives. And some of it has uh, some Blackwoodian nonfiction in it, which is uh, very interesting to me. I think Blackwood is a, a great and an interesting guy just all by himself. His fiction, of course, the, the Willows is one of the perfect weird tales ever written. And a lot of his other stuff is not that far away. And it turns out he was a spy. Who knew? So lots of things going on with uh, good old Algernon Blackwood and lots of I'm reasons. I'm beginning to suspect that the list of English authors who weren't spies is shorter and more efficient. I, I, I do think that 
MI6, at some point on the, on the employment interview, they would say, um, uh, this is looking very good. Now tell me about your novel. Yes. Could you give us a sample of your prose style? <laughs> and if they would say, I, I, I haven't actually published a novel. I was too busy, you know, killing the Austrian high command and sneaking over mountainsides in India. Ooh, well, no if, if you're willing oh. to spend a lot of time writing, that means Sorry. you are willing to do foolish and fruitless things. Yes. So, uh, yes. You are, you are easily gold into endless work for no pay. And so therefore are an ideal government bureaucrat. <laughs> Uh, well, Ken, is, is that all of your pile of books? Well, Robin, it is all of the not-occult pile of books. Oh, well, in that case, we better uh, sneak over for a uh, quick message and then creep back in to examine the rest of Ken's bookshop. The skies are dim always since the maker died. Time to weave a tale, my friends. A tale of good-hearted puppets in a bad-hearted world. In John Scott Tyne's puppet land, you rise up against the savagery of Punch, the maker killer. You battle his army of nutcrackers and his terrible boys sewn from the flesh of the maker of all puppets. The gorgeous new hardback edition ships to a store shelf near you in December. Featuring full-color paintings by Samuel Araya. And tons of ready-to-play tales by contributors such as... Kenneth Height. Aaron Dembo. And Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. Are you ready to play? Because Punch and his boys are ready. Ready for you! And we're back. We've got the second half of Ken's Bookshelf, the occult half. And let's start with 36 Faces, The History, Astrology, and Magic of the Deccans by Austin Kopic. Followers of my career will perhaps remember. <laughs> followers of my career. That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Will perhaps remember. The, the Kong Yoshenti of, of Heidian Heitologists uh, of long standing will recall <laughs> GURPS Cabal, which I wrote back in the day for GURPS, in which I. Uh, gussied up the magic system as much as GURPS normally gussies up a simple process like shooting a guy. And my argument was, if shooting a guy is going to take all these special rules, by God, magic should take more, because <laughs> magic always involves special rules. Yeah. And so the structure that I hung the new magic on was the decans, which are the uh, pieces of uh, the astrological sign. So each uh, astrological sign is 30 degrees of sky. A decan is a tenth uh, 10 degrees, hence decan, a, a 10 degree bunch of sky. And so the decans go all the way back to the Egyptian coffin texts. And this fellow, Austin Kopak, has gone through and attempted to explain what everyone's decans were. Now, the trouble is that Austin Kopak is a believer. And so therefore, he rushes through the scholarship and history of the decans to get to his theory of a sort of unified decan. And every now and again, he'll, in the course of talking about it, he'll mention the past. But what I wanted this to be was a book that really deep dove into the um, Hindu magical decans, Agrippa's decans, the Egyptian decans, Picatrix decans, uh, the ones from Hellenistic magic, and compared and contrasted them all such that you had a fuller vision of all the decans. This is about, is, is that for about 45 pages, and then it starts going onto the individual decans. So if you wanted to use 36 faces as a source for your own magic, 
whether gaming or in your, you know, robes and pentagrams, great. If what you want is a strong history of all decanic magic, this is not that, sadly. Chinese Alchemy by Gene Cooper. That's the next in our pile. Yes. Now, when you have a book about anything alchemy, especially Chinese alchemy, and it is 150 digest-sized pages, you know you are not getting everything there is to say on the topic. But I know very little, compared to what I know about other alchemy, about Chinese alchemy. And so this is... It's maybe not 150 digest size pages more than I knew, but let's say it's 100 more digest size pages than I knew. And more to the point, I don't have to dig through all of Needham, and I don't have to go through all of J.C. Smith and try and parse out the basics of Chinese alchemy when I have the lovely and talented Gene Cooper to do it for me. And uh, it's from uh, Red Wheel Wiser, so its uh, eleptonic uh, antecedents are, are good, but it has relatively small print on the back, uh, nice fonts well-designed. So I'm going to just say, knowing nothing, that Jean Cooper has done her work. And certainly that in terms of a first blush uh, look at the history and practice of Chinese alchemy, this is better than what I had before, which is, as I hinted, embarrassingly little. Now, if this weren't on a list of occult books, I would think that The Language of the Corpse by Cody Dickerson was about forensic pathology, but it's in the occult section. So what is it? This is about uh, necromancy, and it is specifically magic using dead bodies, which is, so it's not just talking to dead people, but it's using all their bits for stuff. And this is apparently a big thing in your Teutonic and North European cultures. This book is super small and, uh, actually was kind of expensive given how tiny it was. But if you are interested in magic corpses, as I apparently professionally am, <laughs> And ancient Nordic rites, as yes. again, for my sins, I have found myself involved in. Yes. There you it go. Is your professional interest or so you're telling the border patrol. Right. Exactly. When you, when you, when they find uh, language of the corpse in your book, first you say, yeah, it's about forensic pathology. And if that doesn't work, you say, I professionally write about Nazi vampires. I know <laughs> I'm terrible. <laughs> But, you know, if you do professionally write about Nazi vampires, I have to say... Well, after that, there's a 30% chance to go, well, let me tell you about Nazi vampires. Yes. Or they have a favorite one and they want to talk about yeah. that. Yeah, if you get a border guy that's a Mick Farron fan, then you're good. Uh, and I think that's true anyway. Also, there's um, there's been some new research into Swedish and uh, Icelandic magic texts, as more of them have either turned up or as more Swedish and Icelandic scholars have published in English. And so... If Cody Dickerson has been reading that new research, this will turn out to be worth the money. If, in fact, he is not, well, it's a book about Germanic corpse magic, which is still half the battle. Still on a similar tip, we come to The Book of Grimoires, The Secret Grammar of Magic by Claude Lecoteau. Claude Lecoteau is a guy I have not gotten my head around. Um, he is a French scholar of magic and weirdness and elliptony. Uh, mostly magic, mostly weirdness. He has a book about werewolves that I read that I thought was kind of okay. But he publishes for, in English at least, in Inner Traditions in Vermont. And Inner Traditions is one of those publishers that believes that a back cover is to be used by God and that <laughs> margins are the devil's work. And uh, not yeah, the kind of devil's work. if you let white space develop, you could be sucked into right. their void. Now, there's white space on the inside of the book. Uh, it's it's uh, very readable, let's put it that way. But I don't know if Lacouteau is a real French scholar who just doesn't care what Anglophones think of him, or if he is a dodgy <laughs> French scholar who is published by a dodgy American publisher. I have yet to find anything provably wrong in a Lacouteau book, but I have always approached a Lacouteau book sort of 
from a side eye perspective, looking for things that might be proven. Looking wrong. for things. I have not moved out and said, you know, this guy's a former professor of medieval literature, the Sorbonne. How wrong can he be? I have gone and said, this guy's a former professor of medieval literature, the Sorbonne, but he's published by Inner Traditions in Vermont. So how good can he be? And maybe that's, that's cruel of me, but I don't know. But that said, this purports to be an attempt to sort of take all of the grimoireic magic tradition, basically, and come up with sort of common, what I want to say, maybe a common physics or a common chemistry behind it, so that when you read any grimoire, you can take this uh, knowledge of how grimoires function, or at least grimoires in the Western Goetic and grimoireic tradition, and say, oh, this is trying to do that same thing that these other three grimoires do, but because they were written by people at different stages of mercury poisoning or <laughs> in different <laughs> unreadable handwriting, it comes out differently. And so Lekato is attempting to sort of nail down what is the actual practice that grimoires are touching on. And again, if this is valuable, this would be a great thing for someone who's doing, who's using uh, the Ken writes about stuff, Goetia book to uh, make use of. And if it is, Dodgy, it is at least probably dodgy in the fun direction, because that's what a publisher with a proper understanding of margins will do for you, is provide more Nobody fun. Nobody writes dodgy things to be more boring than regular academia. You would hope that, but it turns out, no, that's not the case. There's some exceptionally boring cranks out there. Oh, Lord. Well, first of all, there's boring cranks. Second now now all, that I phrased it that way, I actually know anyone, the answer to my question. Anyone who writes about a channeled spirit is more boring than the worst academic writing about channeled spirits ever. Yes, well, channeled spirits tell you a lot of, you know, about their day. And yeah. My, my favorite... Various uh, clouds they saw. I, I have a number of, of digressions I could go on about channeled spirits, but I, I'm going to just stop by saying one of my favorite things ever. I'm married to a librarian, and I have friends who are librarians, and every now and again, there will be a new cataloger who comes in and says, um, this book says that it's by William Shakespeare, but it's a channeled <laughs> spirit. Do we put it as Shakespeare? <laughs> or do we put it as the name of the channeled spirit? Or do or we, put do it we as, send it back? What do we, we do? We How do we catalog this? And apparently that's an ongoing sort of low level, um, I don't want to say fight because no one cares, but a, <laughs> a, an ongoing matter for uh, tea drinking and discussion in yes. library cataloging. So that just, that just enjoy, I enjoy thinking that, that somewhere if you had gone the wrong way, you look up Francis Bacon and it's like, wow, he did a lot of good work in the thirties. I would not have thought that for a guy who was dead. Teach the controversy. <laughs> Teach the co exactly. Yeah. Speaking of grimoires, we are now uh, vicariously touching the grimoire of Arthur Gauntlet, edited by David Rankine. And this, by God, is a proper grimoire. I mean, it's still published by a, a magic press, but it's a magic press that is trying to control its its worst impulses and is of that school that says, you need to know what was in that grimoire, by golly. And David Rankine is a pretty good scholar. I don't want to say he's a thousand percent. But our, our friend, our friend of the show, Daniel Harms, uh, reviews his stuff and does not immediately throw rocks at him and, um, uh, does a lot of good things. What, what better imprimatur could you ask for? Right. He's, 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 um, uh, done a lot of editions of grimoires that are sort of trying to straighten up what they actually say. He's done research into who made them, which is maybe where he starts getting excited because I think he wants to find John D behind everything. But again, I'm not going to criticize someone for that. I want to find John D behind <laughs> everything. So maybe the sort of, editorial material is, you know, side-eye worthy, but the actual grimoires are a thousand percent and really good. And this grimoire is from a London cunning man who lived in the 17th century. So for my 17th century London project, look at that. I have a genuine grimoire from a genuine London cunning man. 
Right. And so that makes my life better. And speaking of friend of the show and Stoneskin Press contributor Daniel Harms, uh, he has edited, uh, completely annotated, The Long Lost Friend by John Georg Homan, who is in fact the protagonist of his character in Shotguns v. Cthulhu. And this is where you have to sort of pump the brakes a little bit on judging people by their publisher, because this edition of The Long Lost Friend is from our good friends at Llewellyn, who will publish literally anything, as long as it, you know, has a, a wolf on it. And indeed, oh, this has an owl, almost a wolf. But, uh, <laughs> but they also... If you can't get a wolf, get an owl. They also cool. published uh, Daniel Tyson's edition of the Three Books of Occult Philosophy by Agrippa, which at the time it was done was maybe the best one in English. I think there might be a better one now, but at the time it was really good and it still holds up. And this, our buddy Daniel Harms, who we would trust implicitly anyway, but also it's got a foreword by Joseph H. Peterson, who is the grimoirist's grimoire. This guy is the freaking Werner Herzog of grimoires. If he's gotten your grimoire, you know it's going to be the, the the real deal. He's the, the gold standard. So Joseph Peterson and Daniel Harms both give their imprimatur to this copy of The Long Lost Friend. You can absolutely use it to um, uh, make your corn grow and banish uh, haunted owls and do whatever else you do. It has the whole one in German and in English. It has a lot of uh, scholarly matter from Daniel, which will give you a much better understanding of this than simply having read uh, the Silver John stories by Manly Wade Wellman will. But what this will do is make those stories even cooler and let you do more Appalachian magic or Pennsylvania hex magic uh thusly so if you're doing an american magic game i would recommend picking up the daniel harms edition of the long lost friend okay and now we come to an occultist we have uh, consulted about on a uh, prior episode the magical battle of britain the war letters of dion fortune edited by gareth knight now i hardly have to tell you why i picked this up it says the magical battle of britain right on the damn cover <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, it is the, the, letters. the other title might have been Buy This Book Ken. Yeah, right. It is in a letter form, which on the one hand, as I said, is a great way to uh, dig up new and exciting quotes that you can take the wrong way. Although since the author in this case is an actual magician, there's a limit to how wrong I can take it. And then uh, I actually would have preferred a longer introduction, just more details, even from a believing perspective about what was actually going on with Dean Fortune and the attempt to raise a cone of energy to smite Hitler. Uh, and prevent the uh, the planes from coming. But still, even that said, it is a really you know it's it, it's it's primary sources on the on the magical battle of Britain. So it's already good there, and it's going to have lots of good stuff uh, that will let us know about about what uh, Dion Fortune is up. And hey, she uh, name checks Dennis Wheatley and says, "Keep in mind, Dennis Wheatley has revealed a lot of stuff. Everyone should read Dennis Wheatley and find out what's going on." So I like that. I mean. <laughs> Just right there. That's yes. Dion Fortune, I salute thee. Good for you, stopping it, stopping the Nazis from flying and reading Dennis Wheatley. <laughs> it's all real, especially the ones where Duc de Richelieu has magical powers, as opposed to all the Duc de Richelieu novels where he somehow doesn't. Doesn't have magical powers. Well, that's, you know, that's just the cover, right? Yeah, the, 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 those are the, the ones for the rubes. And Plus, finally, you know, there, there, there's been ones where Hulk can talk and where Hulk can't talk. I don't see why... The, you, you believe in the Hulk, don't you? I met the Hulk when I was working for Marvel. I know, right? So, therefore... Yeah. Yeah. Who are you to say someone can and can't have magical powers? It's like the specter. Yeah. Sometimes he has magical powers and sometimes he can move the moon. Right. And sometimes he's just the narrator. Yeah. Sometimes he's just a guy. Yeah, but exactly. But we digress and we're digressing just before we come to our final book. So it's time to uh, say that the final book is 
Children of Cain, a study of modern traditional witches by Michael Howard. So what is a modern traditional witch? A modern traditional witch is a witch, a, a neo-pagan witch or a, a self-identified ongoing pagan witch. Uh, so a neo-pagan witch who nonetheless is not part of Wicca. And I think Wicca, because it is a deliberately created sort of um, syncretistic religion of witchcraft, I think if you are of a sort of orthodox witchcraft tradition, you say, well, that's all well and good for the kids, but in my day, it's all human sacrifices on the standing stone or nothing. And so it's those guys that kept going on because all the sexy information got going on to the Wiccans. So these are the guys who are doing cutting man traditions and witch bottles and all kinds of fun stuff like that. And so uh, there is a uh, people who established their ancient tradition right when everyone who's a Wiccan is getting on TV and they're like, I wanted to get on TV. And there's people who have just been hanging out in the woods, poisoning people's cattle and going along to get along. But what sold me on this book is one paragraph, Cecil Williamson, a Cornish charmer and cunning man who also served with MI6. And I sort of weep when I realize how easy I am to gull. But I, I think Sheila probably weeps too. <laughs> she she weeps maybe a little more openly. But <laughs> the book already looked good. Michael Howard is a, is a good scholar of of the crazy. He he knows the scene very much. He's not Ronald Hutton, but no one is. Uh, but when you give me a Cornish charmer and cunning man who also serves with MI6, I'm helpless. I'm helpless. So hopefully there will be plenty of data about um, uh, Cecil Williamson. What there is not is an, is no index which I take umbrage at, but not enough umbrage to not buy the book. Also, the illustrations are Well, if they had an index, it would just, you would just be able to read MI6 and flip to that page, and you'd be done. I would. You can't have that. Also, the, um, uh, the, uh, the jacket art is by uh, Liv Rainey Smith, who is terrific. And so it looks creepity and woodcuttery and awesome. So right there, maybe that had some, of, uh, some, some influence as well. Liv Rainey Smith is terrific. Check out her art. But also... Cornish cunning man works for MI6. I'm not made of stone, Robin. <laughs> You're not made of stone. I'm and not made of this stone. Podcast. This podcast is made of ephemeral electrons, which are fading away for another week, even as we speak. But we'll fade back in next week with yet another episode of this exciting podcast. Cast, 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 cast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Stand alongside such metahumans as... Jan Pospichel. Jeff Cars. J.F. Paradis. Joe Luttrell. And Diane Donaldson. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>